Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode. Today's today's guest will be Dr. Brenda Charman. So I hope you enjoy. So can you introduce yourself and kind of talk about Sowing Seeds of Faith and what kind of inspired you to start it? Yes, I can. I am uh, Dr. Brenda Jarman. Um, I am a retired university professor. I taught for 14 years at Florida State and 15 years at Florida A&M University. I am preparing now to go back to Florida State starting this semester to teach a graduate course, one course, and we'll probably teach a course each semester just to keep my hands in academia. Uh, in reference to sowing seeds of faith, the mission of sowing seeds of faith is to motivate, inspire, and empower people from all walks of life, utilizing biblical principles. What inspired me to start Sowing Seeds of Faith as I would speak around the world or be invited to speak around the world, um, I, I noticed that people were sometimes short on their faith quotient. And so I, I would always quote the scripture, Matthew 17, 20, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move and nothing will be impossible to you. Now we know that Physically, we would not be able to move a mountain, but there are mountains in our lives that we can move, whether it's um, depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's unbelief, whether it is some childhood traumatic experience that one has been through, whether um, we're surviving divorce, domestic violence, or any of those kinds of things that tend to happen in life from time to time. And so I would, at presentations that I would give, I would give people a mustard seed and quote that scripture, scripture because it's nothing like seeing a mustard seed and realizing how small it is, but the fruit that can grow from that. As well with my students, I was not in the business of saying you should be this religion or that religion or that kind of thing. It's not about that, but it's about uh, your belief in whether you're going to pass this class or not, whether you're going to get out of college and what kind of faith is driving that. So uh, as I was, I did this for years without a name for what I was doing. And my late father who passed in 2010, I was visiting him in 209, I believe it is, that I started this uh, incorporated in the state of Florida. I happened to be visiting my dad and he asked me a question. He said, what is it that you actually do? <laughs> and I said, well, I sow seeds of faith. He says, that's what you should name your company. Voila, here it is. <laughs> and so over the years, having lost my dad in 2010, my mother in 2016, being the executor of their estate and having to oversee all of that, I had not spent a lot of time developing the company as much as I want. It's been a one person consulting operation where I encompassed 
my speaking engagements and my trainings under that umbrella. And that, and so that's how Sewing Seeds of Faith came about. And, and, and uh, having to have a lot of faith myself, I grew up in a very spiritually oriented family. Um, but from the age of 13 to 15, I was a crazy teenager. I met a guy who was much too old for me. He was 19 or 20 thereabouts. And uh, everything my parents taught me, my grandparents went out the window. I would have done anything for this, 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 as I, as I would say to the, my audience, Mr. Look so good. And I ended up by the time I was 15 years old with a son and a daughter. If that's not enough to wake you up, I don't know what is. But the one thing that I really loved about my parents is they were very clear that I was responsible for the raising of my son and daughter regardless. Because by this time, I had survived um, four or five months of domestic violence situations, physical and mental abuse um, that culminated in me uh, leaving my son and daughter's father. Because actually I had moved in with him, believe it or not, at age of 14, my father let me walk out of the house uh, because I didn't feel comfortable living at home with two children. My parents never put me out. Uh, they were always rather supportive, but very firm on the fact that I that I would have to get a job and I would have to be responsible. It wasn't until I moved in with Mr. Look So Good that I realized um, what I was living with, drugs, alcohol, um, domestic violence situation, arguments, a very isolated lifestyle, um, away from my family. And that's what abusers tend to do is isolate you away from your family members or anyone that could persuade you to get yourself out of this situation. And by that time, I wasn't even listening to my parents, you know. But I, I was very close to my grandparents, maternal and paternal grandmothers. And I would share my experiences with them and so they would say, please don't get married because it, this is not going to stop. And I did listen to that because by this time, I wouldn't share this information with my parents. My um, After I had been so, I guess, unkind to them in terms of so deliberate about they didn't understand this man loves me. I can recall when I even told my dad I wanted to move out of the house. He listened very, very calmly. And when I said, you just don't understand, he loves me. My dad put his hand on my forehead and said, Lord, I don't know who this fool is standing in front of me, but I know the child I raised is in there somewhere. And born out of that scripture, Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way it should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. When I walked out on their father, after being thrown down three steps, of this small trailer we lived in, and I was seven months pregnant with my with my daughter. They're only eleven months apart. I left their dad and never looked back. Fortunately for me, my mom and dad took me back in. Um, but my dad was very clear that after he took me to the hospital, made sure I was okay, the child I was carrying was okay, and on the way home, he had some 
very curt words for me <laughs> that may not be appropriate for me to say on this <laughs> on this uh, on this medium. But I will tell you three things that I got out of that talk from him on the 25-mile ride to our family home. Number one, he said, the child you are carrying and the one that you have don't belong to your mother or me. We have raised our children and you will have to raise yours. Number two, you will not go on welfare because that system will trap you. You will have to get a job. It's spelled J-O-B, and I don't mean Job in the Bible, but you are fitting to suffer like Job. <laughs> and number three, you have to figure out a way to finish your education because that is key. My daughter was born April 19, 1967, and on June 2nd, 1967, I turned 16 years old. So here I am, 16, not married, with two children, Mr. Looks So Good, I've not seen since I left him, but yet with the full responsibility of an adult having to raise two children. So uh, I turned, like I said, I turned 16 on June 2nd. My father came into the house on June 4th and said, I have a job for you. Well, I'm shocked because it was just six weeks after my daughter had been born. And he, he found me a job at this poultry processing plant. My dad was an 18, he drove 18 uh, wheeler trucks for most of his life, 40 some years. And he got me a job at this poultry processing plant. And in doing so, he, um, he was real serious. And I and I thanked, I got the chance to thank them many times because it helped make me responsible and it kept me out of the social service system. But it was very, very hard living in a small town. My town, my hometown, Selbyville, Delaware, is smaller or than Gretna, Florida, which is just west of Tallahassee. Gretna has a blinking light, and we have two real red lights. And so I found myself in this small town where I had finished the ninth grade. In the 60s, you could not stay in school and be pregnant. So I got kicked out of school. Um, there were no programs like Teenage Parenting Program here in Tallahassee, TAP program or any of those kinds of things. So I had to figure out a way to finish my education. So after three years of working in a poultry processing plant, and mind you, I had to move from one poultry processing plant to another um, because their dad worked at the one, that first one my dad found for me. And I didn't know it because I had not seen him. But one day I was on the line and I felt someone looking at me. And when I turned around and looked, my heart just dropped because it was him. And now our daughter by this time is almost two months old, but I had not seen or heard from him. And he walked down um, on break and got in my face and said, if you take me to court for child support, I will kill you. Now the rage that I saw in him that night when, when he pushed me out the door and down those steps, um, scared me for a long, long time. 
And that made me walk away and not look back. But I never denied my son and daughter the opportunity to get to know their dad if they wanted to, because I grew up in an era where this is still their dad. And I had to be honest about that relationship because coming from a small town, oftentimes people are unkind. I didn't know who his friends were. I didn't know who his enemies were. And so when they were seven and eight and didn't see their dad in the street anymore because he had killed a person. Now, I'm thoroughly convinced had I not um, walked away from him at the time when I did, I'm certain that my son and daughter and I probably would not be in existence right now. He was a very angry man. Um, but again, these signs I did not see. And if I saw them, I ignored them because that's what we tend to do because we think we can change people. Uh, but I'm, I'm thankful to God. Uh, and that, that increased my faith quotient and made me realize that God had something better in life for me. And now I share my testimony quite freely with my students and with audiences that would listen to let them know, yes, there is hope and God is always faithful and that there is a supreme being that controls this world. I'm not going to get into what religious persuasion you are, but, um, or a person is, but I believe it's very, very important that we are grounded in our faith quotient. And so that makes me sow seeds of faith. Well, that's obviously like very impressive that you were able to persevere through all of those challenges. So I'm um, honestly kind of wondering, most people um, when faced with that, uh, faced with those difficulties mm -hmm. would probably just like give up, but you yes. kept on going and to um, be very successful. So I was like wondering what kind of motivated you to keep um, pursuing your passions? Um, what mode? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. no, you can go. No, go ahead. No, I was okay. just... Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what motivated me was seeing strong women in my life, my grandmothers, my grandparents, period. My grandparents were married for 62 years. My parents were married for 60 years. I saw what that was like and I wanted that. But as a young teenager who, I guess, feeling my oats, as one would say, I thought I had it all together, you know, uh, but but I knew in my gut. And this is what I share with audiences. You know, we know in our gut when we're doing something that's not right because you feel it in your gut. But I still let this other person take complete control of my life. Um, and, but, but, but having that grounded childhood, grew up in a great family, grew up in a supportive family, grew up in seeing my grandmother work from sunup to sundown, my grandmother, seeing my parents work from sunup to sundown. Uh, they always instilled a strong work ethic in us and that we could become anything we wanted to become. And, and even as a young child uh, in school, I was one of uh, 12 kids to integrate our all-white high school in the 60s. And, and, and to stand up against that with my parents saying, I'm coming home crying almost every day. These people don't want me here, blah, blah, blah. The intense racism, the things that I experienced during that time with my dad and mom saying, you're just as good as you go back. You need to finish your education. You're not going to not be at the school. 
And so that taught me that you never give up. Um, my parents were were very, um, I guess you would say poor in material things, but we had everything that we needed. It depends on how you define material things, of course. You know, we always had a roof over our head, food on the table, clothes on our backs, you know, those kinds of essential things. My dad was a great provider. Um, as a matter of fact, my mother didn't, my mother didn't work outside of the home until we were at the time there was my sister and me and my brother, uh, we were all, you know, in school, but, uh, seeing those kinds of strong, um, work ethics, those strong faith efforts, my parents never giving up on anything. Uh, my grandparents never giving up on anything. And, and I even had my great grandmother, my father's grandmother in my life, the first 10 years of my life. And she shared all kinds of stories about her family having migrated from Ghana, West Africa, and the kinds of trials and tribulations that they had to overcome. So you would say that I grew up in a family of strength, a family of despite your circumstances, yes, you can. So I grew up with that kind of attitude. And plus, one really driving factor was the fact that 98% of the people in my small hometown said I would never amount to anything. And so when people come at me with negativity like that, then when you tell me I can't do something or I won't overcome something, then I work twice as hard to say, yes, I can. And these two innocent human beings, Maya, they didn't ask to come here. Their circumstances, um, no matter how untenable they were, um, they didn't ask for it. And I always believed that and was taught to believe that children are precious gifts and you have to be responsible for them. And my son and daughter now are 55, 54 and 55, no, 55 and 56 years old. <laughs> I'm 71. And if you do a little math, you'll see I had both of them by the time I was 15. Um, they're doing great. Uh, my son has had some challenges having lost a business, and but he's getting back on his feet again. Uh, my, he's the father of five. I have uh, six grandchildren. My daughter only has one child. And I have one great-granddaughter, Yael. She's just turned three on July the 4th. So as I look at my family expansion, out of that came some really good things. My son's uh, oldest daughter is going to be starting Towson State this fall as a junior. His oldest son, Noah, uh, Lauren is his oldest daughter. Noah is um, 20. Uh, he's going to be starting his junior year at Salisbury State University in Salisbury, Maryland. Uh, Lauren waited a year before she went to get her AA degree out of high school. And so they're, they're now both juniors. And I'm saying, I'm praying that your graduations don't fall on the same day from college because <laughs> trying to figure out how to do that. And we have great laughs about that. Ginger, his next oldest daughter just graduated from high school and she's going to be attending junior college this fall. And his two youngest children, Trey and uh, Mar Marley, uh, Trey's going to the 11th grade and Marley is in the ninth grade. My oldest granddaughter, who, who is 34 now, she's my oldest grandchild, was my only grandchild for 13 years. That's my daughter and her ex-husband's child. 
She married a few years ago and they now have Yael, but she lives in Virginia Beach and they're doing very well. That's so good to hear. And I was listening to you talk and I was kind of wondering if it was like kind of um, like how hard it was to start something of your own and like what were your first steps when starting sowing seeds of faith? Um, what my um, financial planner noticed was that I was getting a lot of income reports to my social security number. And he said, you, you speak so much and you do so much um, consulting work, you should start a business. And, you know, um, and get a tax ID number, et cetera, and so forth. And we wrote up the Articles of Incorporation, and that's how I incorporated in the state of Florida in 209. And again, my father gave me the name for the business because I discussed this with him, you know, that, you know, I, I was going to start this business. And Sowing Seeds of Faith has helped so many people, uh, I would say anecdotally right now, but if you go out and read Rate My Professor, or if you look at my Facebook page or something like that, these students are still talking about how these seeds have, I would give them mustard seeds at the beginning of the semester and ask them to put it in their textbook, uh, carry it around in their purse. And I can recall one student a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, um, came to me and she was concerned because she didn't have transportation to go to do her internship. And I said, do you think God brought you this far to leave you now? She says, but I don't know how I'm going to get to my internship. Now this is in August and she's starting her internship in January. I said, a lot can happen between now and January. Just pray over those seeds and tell God what you need. So she had been caretaking an older lady. That that's what she would do um, in the evening time and go to go to the. She was a CNA and um, certified nursing assistant. And so around December, November, December of that year, her caretaker passed. And guess what? Her caretaker left her in her will her car <laughs> and she 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 called me screaming and yelling dr jarman dr jarman is something about these mustard seeds i have some transportation now i said yeah i said he may not come when you want him but he's always right on time that's just one example you know or Years later, I hear students, uh, I mean, I have several students who still stay in touch with me. They tell me about the things that have miraculously, if you will, happened in their lives because they believed or they increased their faith quotient. So one of the goals of Sowing Seeds of Faith, once I get this book done, um, I'm writing a book entitled... Um, from GED to PhD on mustard seed faith. And I've gotten the last chapter in and we're now working on the book cover. Uh, I have a contract with iUniverse, which is a division of Penguin Books. 
And we hope sometime before the end of this year to release that book, or at least by the first of the year. But it's a book that hopefully will motivate, inspire, and increase folks' um, faith quotient. Because I put mustard seed faith on there because I wasn't supposed to succeed if you believe statistics. I'm supposed to be on welfare. My son is supposed to be criminalized or at best in jail, uh, you know, over some stuff. Or my daughter's supposed to have four or five kids on welfare and those kinds of things. But I'm not an anomaly. There are several people's stories out there that are similar. I have women walking up to me with tears rolling down their eyes saying, you just told my story. I said, well, then what God has brought you through, then now you have to go out and talk about the goodness of God and what he's brought you to. And that use your story, not to feel ashamed of your story, because as the Bible says, he who is without sin, let him or her cast the first stone. And so all of us have fallen short, but we serve what I believe is a forgiven God, you know? And so we have to, that uh, it gives us a testimony. And so once I get this book out, probably shortly after the first of the year, I hope to start a blog or a radio show, a blog that may lead into a radio show where people will come on under Sowing Seeds of Faith and share their faith stories. And I've had some conversations with a couple of people who are interested in joining me on that. And we and 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 one of them directs a ministry here in Tallahassee. And um, the young ladies that come to the home that she runs for pregnant and parenting teens um, have a lot of faith stories. I know a lot of people who've been through a lot. And, you know, once we start doing that, then we want this show to motivate, inspire, and empower people that, yes, you can rather than you can. One of the things that I will say to audiences is we have to remove the word can't from our vocabulary. And we might want to say, I'm not able to at this time. Um not being able to do something is not the same thing as I can't do something. I ask people to think about the last time they told themselves they couldn't do something. They didn't do it. I learned a long time ago to stop saying I can't. I will say I'm not able to at this time. And then eventually I may go back to pick it up. Um, and life is very short. So I'm very cautious now about how I spend my time. I want to utilize whatever years I have left. And mind you, I have more years behind me than I do in front of me, motivating and inspiring people to be all the best version of themselves and to use the gifts and talents that God has given to them. And even if they get something that they think they want, didn't get something that they think they want, I always believe that there's something better in store. And we have to believe that. And, and move in that direction in faith. So having people come on and share their faith stories um, will give people the idea of what I said earlier. I'm not an anomaly. There are plenty of people out there who have survived all kinds of things. It's giving them a platform and the courage to share their testimony. And that's what I hope, that's one of the things I hope to do with Sowing Seeds of Faith. And then I, I hope to, 
self-published some sort of self-help books around faith. Um, after I get my book done, uh, make an audio book out of uh, from GED to PhD on mustard seed faith and move forward, uh, spending my time running around the world, motivating, inspiring, and empowering people. Yeah, and I think I actually read about this book online. And was it kind of like scary um, choosing to open yourself up to the public or um, like was it familiar? Because you mentioned earlier that um, you were kind of familiar with um, talking to other people about um, how you grew up. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, at, initially I was because I almost bought into um, the negative things that people were saying about me and my community. And as I worked in that poultry processing plant for almost three years, well, I went left one and went to another one. But in that process, I was still living through all of this negativity from uh, my um, college. I mean, I mean, my high school friends who were going on to complete high school and things like that. And that really bothered me in the, in the 60s. And so I heard about the Job Corps program. Have you heard of that program before? No, I have. Job Corps is a residential training program for kids who haven't quite decided what they want to do. It's a government-sponsored program by the Department, U.S. Department of Labor. It's one of America's best-kept secrets. Job Corps was my stepping stone to everything that I am in, I am doing now. Job Corps provided me an avenue to get a GED, go to... Um, upward bound program at West Virginia State University because I had to go to um, uh, Charleston, West Virginia Job Corps Center in 1969. I was there about a year and a half and I, and I completed my GED in three months. I was determined. The more people told me I couldn't do something, the more determined I was. And it was quite embarrassing to live in a small town with almost all of my friends graduating high school. And I was not because in, before I met their dad, I was quite intelligent. You know, uh, I was pretty much a straight A student. Um, but I lost interest in school and everything. I just wanted to live for this guy. And um, but somewhere deep inside of me, I wanted I did not want to spend the rest of my life in that poultry processing plant. And Job Corps became my stepping stone. And while I was in Job Corps, I met uh, uh, Mrs. Ruth Norman, who was 70 years old when I joined Job Corps. And my cohort, there were 10, 10 other kids in my cohort, and we were asked to give a presentation on why we came to Job Corps. When I finished my presentation, Ms. Norman looked at me and said, I picture you being the Dean of Women at a major university one day. I thought the woman was crazy because I saw myself as some folks in my hometown had described me, high school dropout, pregnant parenting team, nobody's ever gonna wanna marry you with two kids, all those negative things. And she looked beyond that and moved toward motivating and inspiring me. She got me, uh, as I finished my GED, I graduated valedictorian, but that summer, she, uh, the summer of 70, she got me enrolled in um, 
the Outward Bound program and I took two college courses and that gave me a vision because college wasn't even on my mind. I was just glad to get a GED at the time so I could get back home and take care of my son and daughter. One thing that Miss Norman did for me was she began to take me home with her about every other weekend. And she had a gospel radio program and she taught me how to work the controls and those kinds of things. And then number two, when I graduated, when I got home, my mother said, you have a letter from Tallahassee, I mean, um, Delaware Technical and Community College. I'm, I'm from the state of Delaware. I said, really? Why? She said, uh, I don't know. I didn't open it. And I opened it. Miss Norman was so vested in me being successful. She had paid um, two years of tuition to Delaware Technical and Community College for me. I could not accept that because I had to find a place for my, me, my son, and my daughter to live. I had to um, get a job and take care of my son and daughter. But I promised her and thanked her and promised her that I would finish college. So the, the, the $1,500 that I got as an allotment to start my life over again from Job Corps, I bought my first house in Dover, Delaware. I'll never forget it. And uh, the house was $12,500. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath house at 731 River Road in Dover, Delaware. And I, it was a fixer-upper. We had to do quite a bit of painting or quite a bit of this, but it was mine. And, and my house note was only $85 a month. <laughs> at that time. And I moved myself and my two children to Dover, Delaware. Got married, married a, a young man that I had been dating before I went to Job Corps. Um, unfortunately, the marriage didn't work, but he and I are the best of friends right now. We were married for seven years. And um, he gave my son and daughter his last name. And I kept that name because I, I didn't want my kids having a different last name than me, uh, because sometimes that can cause trauma for kids uh, to have these different names. And so when I finished my, about two years before I finished my PhD and my son and daughter are both out of high school now and on their own, I went back to my maiden name, Jarman. But when I first came to Tallahassee in 1986, my name was Brenda Jarman Postley, P-O-S-T-L-E-Y. So there are some things out there under Brenda Jarman Postley, there, uh, but over the last few years, since about 1990, I think my name has been, my professional name has been Brenda Jarman because I went back to my father's name because I believe that my family was the one who supported me during all these trying times that I have had. My ex-husband was very much opposed to me going to school and uh, I just could not keep that name but we got past that. And like I said, we're the best of friends right now. And my, and my son and daughter uh, still have, particularly my daughter still has a relationship with her stepdad. They also have had a relationship with their dad who after 40 some years of being in prison was released in 2015. And, uh, but I, when they were seven and eight, I, when they didn't see their dad in the street anymore, he might give them $5 or something like that. 
but never really paid child support. Um, and I didn't press that issue because actually, to be honest, I was too afraid given the rage I had seen in him. Well, when they kept asking questions about why they didn't see their dad in the street anymore, I, and I write real intensely about this in the book too. I had to make a decision about what my son and daughter needed versus how I felt about him. And so I said to my family who were vehemently against me, taking them to the prison to see him. But I did it. I, I went to the warden of the prison and I wanted to, I didn't want them in the general population. I wanted them separate. And I started visitations, but I went in to see their dad before that first visit. And what I did was, said to him, your children keep asking for you. They want to know why you're in here and why you, you know, killed two people, et cetera, and so forth and so on. And I said, I could say a whole lot of negative things about you. They would all be true, but I'm going to take the high road. Mm -hmm. And if they want, as long as they want to come to see you, then I will bring them. And it worked out well so far. Anytime they wanted to go to the, um, prison, I took them. And then that mounted to about either once a month or sometimes twice a month. The third or fourth time that they went to the prison to see their dad, <laughs> they came out, Maya, they were so happy. They were just brimming with happiness. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next episode.